It's like stepping into the world of people who are oppressed or hungry or marginalized. Who you find there are whole and complete people. They're not poor. What's poor is their circumstances. People living in those kinds of circumstances are enormously strong. They exhibit more courage to live through a day than you and I are going to need in our lifetime. They have a powerful inner life, a faith that they can create possibility out of nothing. People thinking they're not okay unless they have way more than they need is crazy. A billion people to go hungry all the time on a planet that was awash with food. Ultimately, it's said that there was a lack of integrity in the human family's relationship with each other and itself. A little individual can make a difference that can impact all humanity. They made a commitment larger than their own life. It's an extraordinary commitment that reaches back into your life and makes you into the person who can fulfill it. You make a commitment larger than yourself, your life starring you sort of fades in the background and your life becomes used by the commitment you make and it reaches back into your life and turns you into the person you need to be to fulfill it. Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution with Nikki Ballou. Join the revolution. There's never been a better time in history to speak your truth, find your freedom, and make your fortune. Each week, we interview the world's top thought leaders and learn the secrets of how they built a six to seven figure practice. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice. Welcome to another exciting podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your host, Nikki Ballou. And boy, do we have an exciting guest lined up for you today. Today's guest uh, is a personal hero of mine. Uh, she is somebody who has dedicated her life to the transformation of humanity and moving humanity in a positive direction. She is the author of the multiple best-selling book, The Soul of money. She is the creator of the incredible Soul of Money Institute, and she has a brand new book out, How to Live a Fulfilling Life. I am speaking, of course, of none other than the one, the legendary, <laughs> the only Lynn Twist. Welcome to the show, Lynn. Wow. <laughs> what an introduction. Hi, Nikki. Thank you for having me and for saying such beautiful things. <laughs> My pleasure. So, Lynn, um, I happen to know who you are, and that's why I wanted you on my show. But let me tell you about the people that listen to my show. They all tend to be entrepreneurs, and they all tend to be the kind of entrepreneur that wants to use business as a vehicle for making a difference in the world. Absolutely, they want to make money, and they want to take care of their families, and all that good stuff. But they really want to make a difference. And the reason they listen to this show is not because of me, because I'm here every week. They listen to this show because they want to learn from you and they want to find out how you go about doing what you do and how they can apply it in their own lives. But before they can open their hearts to you, they need to get to know you. So tell us your backstory. How'd you get to be the Great Lynn Twist? <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, um, thank you for uh, for having me and thank you for uh, drawing the entrepreneurs that you draw to your show. People who really uh, not only want to uh, make it make a business happen, but make it happen in a way that serves the world. So I, I love talking to people like that. Um, so I've been a, what I call a pro-activist my whole life, actually, probably since I was a little girl, but I, I you know, could only express it once I got, you know, to be in a kind of a grown-up 
body in college. And um, so I've been involved in global issues my whole life. And um, I really got my uh, my feet wet, you could say, or my hands in the in the in the real world when the Hunger Project was born, um, an organization devoted to ending world hunger and making the end of hunger an idea whose time has come. And I became one of the executives of the Hunger Project uh, way back there in the 70s. So I'm I'm uh, I've been at this for decades um, and was you know, privileged and honored to make the end of hunger my my life's work, my raison d'etre, why, why I was alive, really. And um, and my my husband and my children, and we all got very, very deeply involved in ending world hunger, which took me to sub-Saharan Africa, you know, places like Ethiopia, Ghana, Senegal, Zambia, Zimbabwe, you know, Guinea-Bissau, Gabon, South Africa, um, and also India, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, um, uh, Nepal, places where people are living in hunger and often also in poverty. And that work, um, as, as, as daunting as it sounds, is super, super, super inspiring. And it's like a, um, it's like stepping into the world of people who are oppressed or hungry or marginalized who you find there are whole and complete people, not people who I would call poor and I would never call them poor now that I know them. They're not poor. What's poor is their circumstances, not them. In fact, people living in those kinds of circumstances are enormously strong. Uh, they need to be. They're incredibly creative. They need to be to survive. They exhibit more courage to live through a day than you and I are going to need in our lifetime. Um, they're The circumstances that their life demand that they have a, a powerful inner life, a faith that they can create possibility out of nothing. So I learned so many lessons from people that I used to call poor that now I would call extraordinary, whole and complete human beings living in the oppression and tyranny of, of, uh, of adverse circumstances. Uh, I've drawn for my whole life on the lessons I've learned from them. And then I, I, because I was in what's often called the nonprofit sector, I don't call it that. I call it the social profit sector because what we're always generating is a social profit, P-R-O-F-I-T, but also uh, people living in, 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 and working in, in the kinds of work that I've done. Uh, you become a kind of social profit, P-R-O-P-H-E-T. In other words, you stand in the future you're committed to. And then from that future, standing in that future, that vision, come back into the present and do what you can to transform the present and unblock that future from being realized. Uh, so that's why I call it the social profit sector. But for being in that sector, uh, I became a, a, a pretty good fundraiser because it's that's how you survive. You know, you have to raise money. And in raising money from hundreds of thousands of people, and training 50,000 fundraisers in 57 countries for the Hunger Project, I learned a lot about money. I learned a lot about our relationship with money. I learned about the angst and anxiety and upsets and worries and fears that everybody, no matter where they are, no matter how much they have or don't have, have in their relationship with money. And I realized that it, it's not related to the amount of money or the lack of money it's just in the culture of money to be upset and anxious and worried and fearful that you don't have enough money, even if you're a billionaire, because as a fundraiser, 
I've had the privilege and opportunity and challenge of working with some of the wealthiest families in the world. So that's how I wrote The Soul of Money, to really talk about our relationship with money and how far afield our financial life often is from our soul. And when we bring those two things back together, there's an integrity in our life. There's an experience of enoughness, no matter how much money we we have or don't have. There's an experience of wholeness, sufficiency, um, and, uh, and uh, really knowing who we are. And so that's the soul of money uh, journey that I've been on my whole adult life. And then more recently, I've been working with indigenous people of the Amazon, which seems completely different. But in many ways, it's the next chapter of understanding our relationship with ourselves and money because the indigenous people of the Amazon rainforest, they didn't even know there was a thing called money. They live in a reciprocity, a complete reciprocity with each other. The uh, The commitment is the well-being of the community is the highest commitment. And then they don't individuate the way we do. We kind of individuate at the expense of the community, whereas they uh are committed to the well-being of the community. And then within that, each person knows that they will be healthy and well, and so will their family. And so that um, that reciprocity, that communal way of living uh, for many, many centuries has never really required money. They have everything they need. They're not poor. Um, uh, but in interacting in our world, yours and mine, the, the modern world, they need to understand that we're all kind of obsessed and hijacked by money. So they've had to learn about money and to work with people who knew nothing about money, didn't even know it existed. You know, they say you can't hunt for it. You can't fish for it. You can't eat it. Why do people want it? It's like kind of crazy to them. I started to see money from their viewpoint, which really gives you a whole nother angle on our obsession, our craze, our addiction, our you know, kind of weird relationship with money as if it's like a god. And so um, that's that's really been enlightening for me and given me the opportunity, especially working with Indigenous people, to commit my life now to bringing forth an environmentally sustainable, spiritually fulfilling, socially just human presence on this planet. And that's the mission of the Pachamama Alliance. Pachamama meaning Mother Earth. Pachamama Alliance, meaning an alliance between the indigenous people of the Amazon rainforest and conscious, committed people in the modern world like you and all of your listeners for the sustainability of life. And so that's my work, and it's a privilege to do it. And it's not a job. Uh, it's a vocation. It is a. It evokes who I am. It gives me a reason for being. And it um, allows me to know that I can make a real difference with my life. So um, that's a long answer to your very short question. <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful answer. Um, I want to unpack some of the things that, that you were talking about. I'd like to go back to you getting involved with the Hunger Project back in the 70s. And if 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 you wouldn't mind, let's get into that a little bit. The Hunger okay. Project was originally... Um, the brainchild of a few people now correct me if i'm wrong but one of them was werner Earhart, and another one was john denver was buckminster fuller part of the hunger project as well yes, yes. yeah buckminster yes. fuller was a part of it yeah so listen i believe there are no accidents and i believe that god puts people together and so 
this interview has been on the books for a couple of months. And just a few weeks ago, I ordered a book by Robert Kiyosaki and I started to read it. It's called The Capitalist Manifesto. And you wouldn't know it looking at the cover, but he spends a good hundred pages talking about the work of Buckminster Fuller in this book. Apparently he, he was, a yeah, he was a student of Bucky Fuller's, right? Wow. And, yeah. For, for almost 10 years, you know, mm. in the seventies up until when Bucky passed in 1983. And I'm talking like I knew the guy, but when I didn't, but you know, he seems like somebody I'd know Bucky buddy, Nikki and Bucky, but it, it was the types of things that Robert talks about in this book, how Buckminster Fuller thought and how in 1927, he decided he was never going to work for money again. That's one of the things that he said in the book. And you were talking about that, that in this society of indigenous people in the Amazon rainforest, there's people that don't even know what money is. It's like a foreign concept to them. And Buckminster Fuller in 1927 said, how I'm going to work going forward in my life is I'm going to go and find out what God wants done and I'm going to do it. And I'm going to follow that impulse in what I do. And in 1927, he was a very ordinary man who, you know, had gone to Harvard and been kicked out twice because he partied too hard. He, he <laughs> wasn't particularly well known in 1927. He hadn't done all the amazing things he'd become known for. And then he followed that impulse and he became one of the greatest thought leaders the world has ever seen. And, you, you know, he was part of the group that created the Hunger Project. And I'd love to find out from you what it was like to be around somebody who was that far thinking in their approach to the world. Uh, well, thank you for, gosh, thank you for asking about him. Bucky was one of my most extraordinary teachers and um, Bucky for people who don't know that name a lot of younger people don't really know about him he was uh, trained as an engineer and an architect um, uh, and uh, he was called the grandfather of the future by millions and millions of people because he was way ahead of his time he invented the geodesic dome which is a structure that heats and cools itself without any energy whatsoever. It's like a miracle. Yeah. Uh, he knew that energy would be really an important part of the long-term future of life. He invented an electric car in 1949. 1949. He saw the end of fossil fuels. He saw the damage that was starting to be uh, wrecked upon this earth in 49. Nobody, nobody was talking about that then. I mean, it wasn't until the late 60s or early 70s that that James Hansen and other scientists were starting to talk about, um, you know, the, the, the oil industry being um, something that we needed to start working to complete. So uh, Bucky was just an amazing, like a seer, but he did it in the, what, what it was like, to, just to answer your real question here, being around him, I didn't actually understand what Bucky was talking about almost ever. He was so... so Robert um, says in his book, too. <laughs> yeah, I didn't understand him, but it didn't matter because I got him, if if I can put it that way. And I know you've taken the landmark work. That's yeah. that's kind of a term that I, I think sometimes comes from that work. I got him. I I, I got who he was. And, um, and I didn't understand him. That was okay with me. He could be talking about 
the molecular theory of this and talking about, um, you know, the tetrahedrons and the icosahedrons and the, the way cells were organized and all that stuff. And I didn't understand it, but there's a, um, a Emerson quote. I love this quote. Who you are speaks so loudly, I can't hear the words you're saying. Who you are speaks so loudly, I can't hear the words you're saying. And that's perfect for my relationship with Bucky because what spoke to me was not his scientific lectures, but who he was, was someone who loved the universe so much, who loved the way life organized itself, who loved the cellular structure of, of atoms, and I won't even get this right, who loved the earth, who loved the evolution of, of, of the natural world, who, and he, and I was drawn to his love. And I loved him. <laughs> I loved his love. Uh, and I, I, I became a lover of, of life, of what I call the 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 community of life the 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 natural uh intellectual integrity of the universe he used to call the those, those were his words he loved the intellectual integrity of the universe and that we would we could learn anything and everything we needed to know from that it was just all right here in front of us and i loved that about him i loved and he was the man who who declared that we were living in a mindset of scarcity um and that we needed to shift to a mindset of sufficiency, which is different than abundance. He declared that we were living in a you or me paradigm, either you, Nikki, make it at my expense, or I make it at your expense, because our belief is there's not enough for both of us. So we both try to accumulate as much as we can to keep, since we think there's not enough for both of us, we, we think there's not enough to go around and someone's going to be left out. So we get that gives us permission to accumulate more than we need um, because we think there's not enough for for everyone and somebody's going to be left out and we want to make sure it's not the people we love. And that distinction, that, that, that begins the us-them paradigm. Um, and he said, no, there's enough for everyone everywhere to have a healthy and productive life. So it's a you and me world. You and I can both make it at no one's expense that we don't need to accumulate way more than we need. We don't need to get so much excess that we're safe from ever being left out. And you can see now with people, be, you know, approaching being trillionaires, it's obscene. It's like, no, 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 that's so wrong. No one person or one family should control billions and billions of dollars. I mean, really, it's just like, it's obscene and it's so not right. But that's because the system tells you you have to accumulate way more than you need to be safe. And then you can help people who are left out, but not until you have so much. <laughs> and that's the source of our environmental crisis, the source of our political divide. It's the source of our natural national deficit. It's the source of our obesity uh, 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 pandemic. It's the source of our uh, addiction pandemic. It's a source of alcoholism and mental ill. I mean, you know, the thing is, if you really look at it, it's people thinking they're not okay unless they have way more than they need is crazy. We should take what we need and no more. And uh, and that's that's really what I write about in The Soul of Money. That's what nature does. Nature doesn't take more than, than we need. Indigenous people don't take more than they need. 
Um, so Bucky was my root teacher in the distinction of sufficiency. And sufficiency is distinct from abundance. Sufficiency, enough, is not an amount even. It's a way of being with life, that I'm enough, you're enough, exactly the way we are, and that we get exactly what we need, that the universe gives us exactly what we need. And sometimes it's a bankruptcy. Sometimes it's a climate crisis. Sometimes it's the death of a, a loved one. We get exactly what we need to, to grow and develop into who we need to be. There was, um, in the in Robert Kiyosaki's book, he talked about this game that Bucky invented called the Bucky, Bucky World Game, that they yes. laid out this map on the size of a basketball court, and there were 10,000 red chips that represented nuclear weapons. And Robert said that he and a group of people would take this game out into the world and to see if people could cooperate enough not to destroy each other. And nobody ever won the Bucky World Game, ever. Always they ended up destroying the world. Did you know about this game? What what, what was your experience yes. with it? Yes. Yeah. Well, I paid it, played um, with, with Bucky a different world game, which was about hunger, where we we would have, you know, thousand people really. And um, and there would be and we would match it with the way the population of Earth is now being uh treated and fed. And so there would be a a, a, a it would be a lunch. And of a thousand people, there would be maybe, you know, seven people who would be sitting over here at tables with tablecloths and candelabras and silver and china, and they'd be having steak and caviar and champagne, and there would be a fence around them. And then there would be like, uh, you know, maybe a, a 13 or 14 or 15 people out of the thousand who would, uh, you know, have maybe a few vegetables and some grains. And then there would be, you know, like 900 people who would be having rice and water, and that would be their their lunch. Um, and and people would experience that this is the ratio of the world. This is the way the world is actually organized. And is this is this good? Is this satisfactory? You know, so that's a different world game that I played with him, um, okay. so that people could experience how kind of kind of distorted everything is. Uh, so Bucky really did some beautiful work to help people understand the magnitude of how we've lost our way, lost our soul, lost the path to a sustainable future. Yeah. There was, a, there was another thing that Robert Kiyosaki said, he said in that book, which I just, I wonder if you ever heard him say it. He said at the time, the population of the earth was 4 billion people. And now it's almost yeah. 8 billion. And <laughs> he said that he heard Bucky say there are four billion billionaires in the world and robert at the time was a broke guy who just come back from vietnam had no money he wasn't who he is today and he was like he heard him say that and he said what are you talking about i'm not a billionaire i can't wrap my head around that and and now he says he he's thinks he's starting to understand what he meant by that did you ever hear him say that uh i never heard him say that but i but he always said something similar and i think this is what he meant that each and every one of us has unlimited talents and treasures that belong to us we are uniquely you know there's only one person in all of history that has your fingerprint there's nobody who'll ever have the same fingerprint as you there's 
one person in all of history going backwards and forwards that has your eye pigment. That's why eye recognition is so effective. There's one person in all of history and one person on the planet that has your voice timber. That's why voice recognition works and fingerprinting works. I mean, really, you are absolutely you, Nikki, are absolutely unique and you are a treasure and you have unlimited potential to make a difference with your life. And it's definitely yours. And yes, we're one with everything. And you have a gift to give. If, you, if you're if you born and alive, you have a gift to give. That's why you're here. And it's almost unlimited. So in many ways, that's a different than you're a billionaire, but you are in that way. And so everybody, there's no haves and have nots. That's silly. There's haves, not H-A-L-V-S, but everybody has talent and treasure and incredible gifts to give. But we've organized ourselves. If some people have talent and treasure and some people do not. And that's false. It's just not true. I know that from being in Ethiopia after the famine and dealing with mothers who lost every single child to starvation and then who had never learned to read and write and who um, who had never had the opportunity to go to school and after they lost all their children to famine, they wanted to commit suicide and not live any longer. But then they made a commitment to educate themselves and to become a, 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 a viable members of the society and make a contribution. And these women that I'm thinking of right now went all the way through school after losing all their kids in the famine, got PhDs, and are now playing leadership roles in their country. And they couldn't even spell Ethiopia when that uh, famine took over their lives, but they, all they needed was a chance, an opportunity, an aperture, an opening, a path uh, to make the contribution that was theirs to make. So there's no poor people on this planet. There's no rich people on this planet. They're just people living in different circumstances. And when we unleash and unlock the human spirit in every single person, everybody's a billionaire, a, a billionaire in their own right. So I think that's probably what he meant. And that's what I'm also saying. Um, yeah. We're all extraordinary. We're all ordinary. And we have the opportunity to be extraordinary. So how was it that the Hunger Project brought such diverse people as Werner Erhard, Buckminster Fuller, and John Denver together to create this? I mean, can you help us understand how that came to be? Um, well, I had a little bit of a hand in introducing Bucky to Werner because oh. um, uh, I um, I was working for Est at the time, and Werner was my you know primary teacher. You know, in Buddhism they say root teacher, and for me, I would say in transformation, Werner is my root teacher. Werner Erhard, who founded Est and the landmark work yeah. and the Hunger Project, and when we were um, when we when I was working at Est, I noticed with my friend Ron Landsman, my buddy, uh, we noticed that Buckminster Fuller's grandson was going through the Est training. And um, both Ron and I were huge fans of Buckminster Fuller. And when we realized that his grandson, Jamie Snyder, was going through the Est training, we decided to contact Jamie and see if we could set up a meeting with 
Buckminster Fuller and Werner Erhardt, they had never met. Wow. And we both felt that these two men, if they met, a miracle would occur. And so we had a hand, I'll say, in uh, make, in creating an environment or a, a clearing wow. for the two of them to meet. And when Bucky and Werner met, um, they were going to meet for, you know, my memory is that they were they had a meeting that was cleared on Werner's schedule and Bucky's schedule for two hours. But once they met, both of them canceled everything for the next couple of days and they spent two or three days together and realized that they were both destined to do something remarkable, earth shattering, historic together. And that's wow. when they started talking about uh, ending hunger. And and Werner was already studying hunger as one of the things that he wanted to possibly have the EST graduates address. Because the S training, um, at that time, there were 75,000 people who had taken that program, and they had become a little bit self-absorbed. They, we used to call ourselves S-holes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we were so enthusiastic about the transformation we would experienced that we went around talking about it to everybody else in a way that was a little bit arrogant and Werner felt we needed a project or an initiative that was much larger than just transforming our own lives. And so he was studying the hunger issue as a possible pathway for the S graduates to take their transformation and their human potential and dedicate it to something larger than their own self, self-realization. And then he met Bucky and Bucky and Werner really you know, coined this phrase really came from Bucky that a little individual can make a difference that can impact all humanity. Um, and that was the beginning of really the idea that uh, we could end world hunger, not just alleviate suffer, but actually take on an issue that is actually an integrity issue, not a food issue, an integrity issue in the way that we were relating to each other that, that we would allow on a planet at that time, four billion people a billion people to go hungry all the time on a planet that was awash with food. And, um, you know, redistributing was, of course, important. And, you know, irrigation and farming, important. Yes, extension services, important. But ultimately, it said that we were there was a lack of integrity in the human family's relationship with each other and itself. And so the Hunger Project was born to address that and to transform that. And so Bucky had a huge huge role in the founding of the Hunger Project. The technical founders of the Hunger Project are John Denver, Bob Fuller, and Werner Erhard, because those were the three people who were in the room when Werner Erhard committed to end world hunger on February 14, 1977. But he had just finished a series of meetings with Bucky. So I consider Bucky a founder of the Hunger Project as well. And I was around um, and useful and an instrument of having uh, of having that those meetings take place. Wow, I, I really thank you for revealing those details to me and to the people that listen to this podcast because this is living history. This is something that really inspires someone like me to think about how, I want to go and make a difference that's larger than myself. And, you know, I'm 55 years old right now. And I still 
think that I'm not grown up. I don't have all the answers figured out. There are things that I'm working on that are very important to me. And when I hear about folks like you, folks like Buckminster Fuller, folks like Robert Kiyosaki, um, John Denver, Werner, it it's just inspiring because it gives me impetus to keep going with the things that I believe are important. You know, I, I run, in addition to my business, I run a men's organization. And some of the work in that organization is based on the work Werner did back in the 70s uh, on uh, relationship and, and men and women. I think there was a course, I never was, I never took it and I wish I had. Uh, what was it called? Uh, money, sex, and power? Or was it men, sex, and power? Or yeah, women, sex, and like power? Something, yeah, yeah, something like that. And so that work, that work, apparently, a derivative of it, of it was licensed to a man named Justin Sterling, who then created programs for men and women called the Sterling Men's Weekend, which I did in the Sterling Women's Weekend. Uh, and for, for me, it, it's important right now to to help men because I think today a lot of men are unsure how to be a man in this world. And I was talking to a fellow today who's who loves our group and is stepping away from it because he just can't commit the time that, that it's going to take for him to get what he needs out of it. But one thing he said to me before we ended our conversation was, what you're doing here matters, and it matters a great deal. And it's important that you keep it up. And he said, there's a real need for it. And he also said that I think you could, before you know it, grow this into an organization of a thousand men and, and 5,000 men. And, and my eyes kind of popped when he said that. And the wow. reason they popped was because, you know, right now we're 18, 19 men and it's wonderful. There are 18 great men. And I have a podcast for men separate from this that I do. But the idea of being able to make a difference for a thousand men, five thousand men, and what that's going to do to their families, what what's that going to do in the in terms of their ability to be better better providers, what's that going to do in terms of their ability to be better, you know, protectors of the family, what's that going to do to their ability to be better members of the community, and there's so many people out there that are putting themselves out as gurus for men these days, and. Some of these people have gotten a massive following and I listen to what they have to say to men. And I just go, no, man, I hope young men aren't listening to you because you're, you're wrong about what you think makes a high value man. There's this statement that's going around that what makes a high value man today is a man who makes a lot of money, has abs and can sleep <laughs> with a lot of women. That's their thing. And they've got hundreds of thousands of people following their work, watching what they have to do. And I'm like, no, no, this is nuts. Yeah, when I was 17, I thought that was great. When I was 21, I thought, yeah, great. But no, that's not what makes a high value man. You know, and so this fellow said, so Baloo, we call each other by our last names. Baloo, what do you think makes a high value man? And I go, okay, well, I think it's three things. One is he keeps his word and he doesn't take it back when it's inconvenient, when someone gives him a better offer than the offer he has on the table, he still keeps his word. That means he can be counted upon. And the second thing is he's loyal. He'll do what he said uh, and you'll stick with the people that, uh, you know, um, matter to him. Uh, and, and thirdly, he takes personal responsibility for his life. 
That's what makes a high value. It doesn't matter how much money he makes. How much money he makes is completely irrelevant. And I love money. Listen, I'm a capitalist. <laughs> you know what I mean? 100%. I'm, I'm, I believe in all that. But for me, on my tombstone, I wanted to say that I was a good father, I was a good husband, and that I did something to help other people, to help other men in particular. And 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 so when I hear about what you've done, what Buckminster Fuller did, what Bob Fuller did, what John Denver did, what uh, Werner did. It gives me the courage to continue mm -hmm. with what I'm doing. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Well, I, I feel that, you know, in our in our lives, there's um, there's sometimes a, a misunderstanding that people that we consider great were born like that. And actually you know, one of the things that's, that I'm trying to accomplish with the book I just wrote is that they were just born like the rest of us. But what made them extraordinary is they made a commitment larger than their own life. You know, Bucky was suicidal when he was 27. He almost took his own life because he was an alcoholic. He had been thrown out of Harvard. He had lost his job. His wife had a baby and he couldn't support his family. And then he made a commitment to live a life. He considered himself a, a throwaway human. He thought, if I am a throwaway human and I can take this throwaway man and make a commitment that, as an experiment, can I make a difference that would impact all humanity? And that turned his life around. And, um, you know, when I think about Jane Goodall, she was just a young British girl who, in in her teenage years, went to Africa with her mom and and she made this big commitment and then she became a great scientist, but she didn't start out that way. When I think about John Denver, you know, I knew him. He was, you know, he was a kid who loved playing the guitar and singing songs. And then he made a commitment that his music would, he would create music that would stir the soul of people who heard it and that the words he would write would have them rethink the possibility of being human. And if you listen to his songs, they're all about that. So it's 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 an extraordinary commitment that reaches back into your life and makes you into the person who can fulfill it. It's not like you're extraordinary and then you make an extraordinary commitment. No, you're ordinary. And then you make an extraordinary commitment. You make a commitment larger than yourself, your life starring you, sort of fades in the background and your life becomes used by the commitment you make that's larger than your own life. And it reaches back into your life and turns you into the person you need to be to fulfill it. And that's really how it works. You know, you look at, you think about Malala, Amanda Gorman, Greta Thunberg, these three young women that for me are so inspiring. And here they are so young, so courageous that they found their commitment to a life larger than themselves early on. And we're, we're humbled by their power. Um, and it's the, it's, it's the commitment that gives you the power. It's not like it's, it's not in everybody. It is in everybody, but it takes something to unleash it, to unlock it. And that's what um, my book is about. And I think that's probably what you're, your um your program is about because we all long for that but it, it's like we think that 
that these people are different than us, but they're not. They're just like you and me. And they make a big commitment and that changes everything. Well, it's a nice segue into your book. So let's let's talk about <laughs> your book. And um, what made you decide to write this book at this stage? Um, well, I have a very fortunate, uh, I'm very fortunate to be a friend of Jack Canfield. And he wrote the Chicken Soup for the Soul series and sure. sold a billion copies, a billion with a B. And um, he and I are friends and I he heard me tell some of my stories. I have a lot of stories with all the work that I've done. Um, and, and, you know, he said to me, Lynn, you've got to write another book. You've got to get these stories out into the world. And I said to Jack, I can't do it. I'm an activist. I'm on the field. I don't have time to write a book. I'm not a solitary person. I'm on the, I'm on the playing field. I'm working in the Amazon with indigenous people. And he said, look, I'll make it easy for you. You come to my house in Santa Barbara. He lives in Santa Barbara. I'll get 30 people in my living room. You and I uh, will sit in front of them and I'll inter interview you and you can tell story after story after story after story after story. We'll get a caterer. We'll feed and water people so that they can just stay there and be your audience until you're done. And, um, you know, if it takes one day or two days or three days, I'm going to get it out of you. And then we'll have it all transcribed and that'll be the beginning of a book. And so he did that. And um, yeah. I told 167 stories in three days and they got transcribed. And then we, um, we being my collaborative writer, Mary Chase, and I shaped it into the book called Living a Committed Life. And we started to realize that some of the stories were distinguishing a particular set of, set of principles. So the book is organized by, you know, turning breakdown into breakthrough, the distinction between change and transformation how to find your calling, um, uh, how to build a, a, an ecosystem that supports you so that you can fulfill a purpose larger than yourself. Uh, but it's all through stories, stories about Van Jones, stories about Jane Goodall, stories about people in the rainforest that I've worked with, stories about myself, stories about my heroes and heroines, stories about Oprah. Um, so it's um, it it it's really a book of stories that demonstrate that anybody and everybody has within them the capacity to live a committed life, uh, and so Jack Canfield uh, deserves a lot of credit. I was just on his podcast yesterday. He deserves all the credit, really, for getting me to write the book. <laughs> um, and then Mary Chase, my collaborative writer, who helped me put it into something that people would read. Uh, so that's the answer to that question. Those two people made it happen. So I, Jack was on my show, um, God, back in 2019. Uh, and um, he's a great man. He's a great he man. Is, one he's of, a great God, I've done, with this podcast, we're over 460 episodes in. Uh, wow. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. So mm -hmm. I think his episode is one of my top 10 all-time favorites. I, yeah. He makes everything so practically accessible. You know, he's so, uh, he so knows how to speak to people so that they come away with, oh, I'm going to do a gratitude journal now, or, oh, I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to do step one, step two, step three, and I'll have a vision board. And then I'll be able to live inside of that vision. And he's so um, practical. Uh, and I really appreciate that. He knows how to, move people from ideals to action and i love that he's 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 a master 
a master. He is. He is. Raymond uh, has been on my show. He was the, my very first guest when I was nobody. Nobody heard of me. Uh, I approached Raymond because you know I was his uh, I was his fitness coach when he did the North Pole race. Right, I'm the guy who got him ready. Oh, for you were? Yeah, yeah. That was my. Oh my! That was God. how I got to know Raymond. Yeah. Up, up and down those flights yeah. of stairs. And oh yeah, that's me. That's me. <laughs> behind him. Oh my God! You did that. I did that. Oh, Two years. Goodness. Two years. Oh we my God! Day. It was pretty wild. It was pretty wild. It was that a great. Was incredible. Did you go Thank with you. him to the North Pole? I didn't go with him to the North Pole. Uh, you know the the way the um, the way the race was set up, uh, you had to uh, you had to apply to get into the race. I, I had a no idea of any of this until Raymond did it, and he got back to me. Raymond was um, Raymond had a a race partner already, and at the time, like I'm from Iran, okay, so. I don't do cold. I know I live in Canada, but I don't do cold. I do the heat, man. Like my lady, she's a Canadian girl. And when she's at my house, she wants to open the window in the winter. And I say, are you nuts? I'm turning up the heat, girl. I like it when it's 30 degrees centigrade. To me, that's comfortable temperature, okay? So, but, you know, at this stage in my life, I I, I might consider doing something like that. I'll think about it. But when when I called him and I said, look, I'm launching this podcast, would you honor me and be my first guest he was an immediate yes like raymond is a yes 99 of the time to whatever i ask of him which is one of the most amazing things and it was a it was a fantastic episode but many years later um you know that was in 2016 our first episode came out i think in june 2016 we recorded in april and came out in june but many years later we recorded an episode about the polar race and that has got to be my second favorite episode of all time and um raymond was amazing he's the one who introduced me to jack he introduced me to you he's introduced me to joe uh vitali of the secret he's introduced me to jack's uh, partner in chicken soup mark victor hansen who came on twice with his wife and his son-in-law uh and um it, it, it's been great it's been great incredible mm -hmm. people make incredible things happen that's one of the things that i've learned in this life you know, have you ever heard of um, a young man who unfortunately passed away at 33, same time as Jesus? It was eerie, and he looked a bit like Jesus, too, by the name of Stefan Arneo. Does that name ring any bells for you? No, I've never heard of him. No. So Stefan was one of Raymond's earliest book writing clients. He wrote his first book with Raymond, you know, when Raymond launched his, his book program. And Stefan... Uh, by 33, had built two multi-million dollar companies. And he also, um, in real estate and in coaching, and then he also started to write about men and manhood. He wrote a book called Hard Times Create Strong Men. And I'll, I'll tell you the story of Stefan and what he said, which was very powerful, was one night, it was um, Valentine's Day, 2021, my lady and I had had a beautiful evening together and she went back to her place and I went to bed. I was tired. I, you know, it was a lovely night and I was ready to crash, fall asleep. For one of three times that I can remember in my life, God spoke to me directly. He said, wake up. And I was instantly awake from almost asleep. And he said, look up Stefan Arneo, go on Amazon. Now, when I look people up, 
I never look them up on Amazon. You know what I mean? I maybe look them up on Facebook. I maybe look them up on LinkedIn, Instagram. Never Amazon. It's not the first place I go to, but he said, look them up on Amazon. So I went on Amazon. First book that showed up was Hard Times Create Strong. Men. He said, buy it. So I bought the book. Wait, wait, what's the name of it? Hard, what? Hard Times Hard Create time. Strong Men. It's from okay. a little poem written by uh, a post-apocalyptic novelist named Jeff Michael Hopf, who I also uh, got to know um, because of Stefan and reading his book. I reached out to him and I asked him to come on my show and he came on my show two or three times as well. But it goes something like this. It goes, hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. Weak men create hard times. And um, Stefan said, we're in the fourth turning, right? The last of the four weak men. So it's time for like the hard times to create the strong men. But he wrote a book about sales called The Close, The Seven Level Close. And in it, he talks about... Uh, he was 30 years old when he wrote this. Like this 30-year-old kid was into making money is like this crazy thought leader. It just blew me away. He talks about the three forms of capital. And he said, well, the first form is real capital, money, you know, the good stuff. And he said, your money's important, but everybody thinks this is the only form of capital I should focus on. And he said, no, 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 no. There's two other forms of capital as important as real capital. And the next one was, intellectual capital so what you know your expertise your thought leadership right so i'm in the thought leader game and you are a thought leader so you understand that your expertise can help people can make a difference real uh, intellectual capital is important but then he talked about what i believe is the most important type of capital and that's social capital and that's who you know your network your connections the people you love the people that love you and Raymond Aaron is someone that I love and, and who loves me. And because I started working with Raymond and I was his fitness coach, he persuaded me to join his uh, monthly mentor program. I got to meet you then when you came to speak there and I was very moved by what you did. But that started my journey of success. And I went from a almost broke guy who was working for himself and at the time was newly married and had a baby and whatnot to a pretty successful businessman who then ended up writing nine books and has two podcasts and is doing a business. And, and right now that business is coming to a place where I think it's going to be a lot more lucrative and it's going to make a bigger impact, but also doing something that really feeds my soul. You know how you spoke about money uh, and, and marrying that with what matters to your soul in your book? That's why I mm -hmm. thought your, your book, The Soul of Money, is one of the most powerful books in the world. I think that everybody should read that book. By the way, mm -hmm. that book is listed in Patrick Bet David's list of top 100 books. Do you know who Patrick is? Have you heard of Patrick? No. He has a channel called Valuetainment. And um, anyways, he's an Iranian. He's like me. He's a Christian, Iranian, Assyrian Came to the U.S. as a refugee from Iran, um, ended up joining the U.S. Army, and then started a business and started the Valuetainment channel, grew his business and insurance to a certain size. His niche was immigrants. He brought in immigrant agents into his business, people from Iran, from the Philippines. And he said, like he talked about this once, he said, um, the average insurance agent in America is a 54-year-old white man married with four kids. And the average insurance agent in um, uh, PHP, People Helping People, his agency, is a 34-year-old Latina woman 
who's oh. about to have her first child. Like I was wild. Like that's how clear he was on that. And he sold that company. What's his, name? What's his name again? Patrick Bet David. And his channel okay, is called Valuetainment. So we got to, I got to find a way to get you connected with him. I'm trying to get on a show myself right now, but uh, so Patrick put your book in his list of top 100 books. Mm. You know, he's on Instagram and maybe you get your, um, your, your, your assistant Mickey to reach out and say, Hey, you ought to interview Lynn, <laughs> you know, on your channel. Cause he's got millions and millions of people that listen mm -hmm. to him and he's mm -hmm. brought people on his show. He's brought mafia kingpins on his show. He's brought basketball players. He's brought um, uh, people involved in the social profit world like you. And he's brought multi-billionaires in the show. Like he just brings in all kinds of incredible people. And to me, social capital, who you know, is the most important capital in the world. Yeah, really. I most think so important too. important capital in the oh. world. And it, it, frankly, if you have good social capital, you'll acquire great real capital <laughs> mm -hmm. pretty quickly and you're smart about it. So mm -hmm. these are, for me, why I think your book matters so much and I'm so glad that you wrote it is because I think everybody needs a cause bigger than themselves. If all we're doing is living for ourselves, we're in the basement of life. We're yes. in the basement of life. We can only go into the penthouse of life and on top of the roof and fly when what we're all about is so much more than us. Mm -hmm. My problems are really not very interesting or important or relevant. And when I get caught up in those, I'm nobody you want to be around. I'm an obnoxious, nasty, pushy, bullying kind of a dude. But when I'm thinking about the difference that I want to make when then I'm a really interesting person to be around and I'm somebody you want to spend time with and, and, and hang out with because, yes. you know, it's not about me at that point. And so yeah. thank you for writing your book. I'm going to get a copy and I'm going to tell everybody here that they should purchase not a copy just for themselves, but 10 copies and give it, give it away to the people <laughs> they love and their clients. So Lynn, if someone wants to get a hold of your book, and find out about the work that you do and engage with you and all that, what is the best way? Uh, well, uh, go to soulofmoney.org, S-O-U-L-O-F-M-O-N-E-Y.org, or uh, Pachamama, P-A-C-H-A-M-A-M-A.org. Pachamama.org is the work we do in the Amazon rainforest. And there's all these beautiful courses that are free uh, about wakening up to the climate crisis and playing your rightful role and also learning from indigenous people of the Amazon. And then Soul of Money is where um, I lead courses on fundraising, on transforming your relationship with money and life. I, I do a, a whole uh, series of courses called Sophia Circle for Women. I'm doing a summit, not a summit, sorry, an intensive called Awakening Women uh, on June 17th and 18th. I don't know if that's before or after this is is podcast is is produced, but um, uh, there's all kinds of uh, wonderful things on there. And then um, I, um, you know, I, I I didn't write nine books like you did. I wrote two. The Soul of Money, which you've referenced, and then the most recent is Living a Committed Life. Um, 
and both of them are available on all the different online bookstores and hopefully the bookstores in your town or in your in your world um uh and and that's that's how to find me thank you you're welcome we're going to make sure we put all of that in the show notes and um okay. offline i'll um connect you to some of the other podcasters that I know that I think might be uh, fun for you to go on their shows and, and, and speak to folks about what you do. I think they're all going to love having you on. Uh, so let me make sure that I do that. I'll connect with you and we'll make sure all that happens. And listener, okay. Lynn Twist is truly an example of what a global thought leader looks like. And she's using her thought leadership to make a massive impact in the world and she's using her thought leadership to inspire other people to use their thought leadership to create success for themselves and to make the world a, a bigger and better place to me as uh, someone who left tyranny when i was a young boy in iran and came to the free west it's amazing and wonderful when there's good people out there that want to make a difference in the world because let me tell you something living in the Middle East, it was an honor to live among the wonderful people of Iran and they've got fantastic, unbelievable human qualities. But unfortunately, the folks who lead that nation and lead far too many nations in the world don't. And they're more interested in um, being in charge and being in control. Uh, and so one of the things that I am very committed to is that one day Iran will be free. And the men and women of Iran are going to get to express themselves and uh, live the beautiful life that they're intended to do. I don't know if you were paying attention last year, Lynn, when that beautiful young woman in Iran was murdered for the crime of being outside with her hair uncovered, Masa Amini. Yeah, right. And, uh, you know, the world needs to do wonderful things to to reshape itself as you're doing. And the world needs people to stand up for for freedom. And the freedom to be yourself and be able to go outside and have your hair uncovered for crying out loud. Yeah. 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 And on that note, Lynn, what are your top three expert action steps? These are your best pieces of advice in bullet point form that you believe will make the biggest difference for my listeners. Okay. Uh, number one, listen to what breaks your heart and what makes your heart sing. And those two things will help you discover what is your calling, what you're being called to be and do on in this lifetime, at this special time in history, so that you can make a commitment to something larger than your own life. That's number one. Number two is live in the profound experience of gratitude be grateful for everything. <laughs> uh, gratefulness or gratefulness is the key to really understanding who you are and what your life is about. Um, it keeps you from complaining or feeling put upon or um, being uh, the victim of anything. If you really just drop into what are you most grateful for really every single day, waking up in the morning, going to bed at night, really practicing gratitude. It's a muscle. And number three, talk about language, what you love. Actually, the words I love, 
I love this restaurant. I loved that movie. I love being on your podcast. I love our conversation. I love the sweater I'm wearing today. I love it that it's a little bit cloudy uh, and that we might have some more rain. Talk about what you love and use the words I love wherever it applies. It deepens your capacity to love. It creates actual little little rivulets in your brain so that you're more and more and more in love with life because that's who you really are, someone in love with life. Um, so a purpose larger than yourself is number one, larger than yourself, sorry, you. Number two, uh, go out of your way to express and give and feel grateful for anything and everything, gratitude. And number three, speak about, name constantly what you love. And when people hear that, it touches them. Even if you say, I just loved the movie Wakanda, even if they didn't like it, they love knowing that someone loved it. That's a powerful part of creating the life uh, that we all um, aspire to have with us and around us and in the world. Those are three super powerful expert action steps. I wrote them all down. They're amazing. Um, Lynn Twist, an honor to have had you on the show. God bless your heart. Thanks for coming. Thank you too, Nikki. It was wonderful being with you. Bless you and bless everybody who's listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bless you too. And that wraps up another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. To find out more about today's incredible guest, the one and only Lynn Twist, go to the show notes at thethoughtleaderrevolution.com or wherever you happen to listen to this podcast, be it iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon, Google Play, or what have you. Until next time, goodbye. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice.